Good morning. In our study through the book of Acts, we've come to a point again where Paul wrote one of his letters. This time it's 2 Thessalonians. So we're going to do an overview of the book today. Now you may think it a little bit unusual that we would be studying Paul's second letter to the church at Thessalonica right the week after we study his first letter. But that's because there is only a few months and maybe just a few weeks between the time that Paul wrote, the, wrote these letters. It's possible, in fact, that the messenger who took his first letter to Thessalonica came back and the news that he brought Paul was what, what encouraged Paul to write this second letter. You remember that we saw in the first letter that the believers were getting confused about the second coming. They were getting mixed up. They didn't know what had happened to believers who had died or believers who had already died. They didn't know if when the Lord came back, they might be let, those believers might be left behind. So Paul had to explain to them that the Lord is taking perfect care of us and he'll ever, all of us will go together to be with him. They were also getting confused about the day of the Lord, which is that terrible time of pain and suffering and judgment on the earth. And they didn't know whether they were going to experience this before the rapture. So once again, Paul had to explain to them that the rapture would take place before the day of the Lord. They didn't have to worry about this. Well, guess what? They're getting mixed up again. This time, they actually believe that the suffering that they're going through is the day of the Lord. They think that they are going through the day of the Lord. And remember, the, one of the key elements when we're looking at the church at Thessalonica here is the persecution they were going through. This persecution probably caused them to believe that they were going through the day of the Lord and at some other things, as we'll see. But you, you think, why would God allow this? Why would God allow these believers to be mixed up in this way? He's using the experience here to create these two letters here. Apart from the book of Revelation, these two letters are basically everything that we have regarding Jesus' second coming. So he's, he's building his church through this. So if you're not already there, please turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2, Paul greets the church. Then in verse 3, through the end of chapter 1, he spends his time encouraging the believers. Because it's so easy when you're going through difficult times like this, as the believers were, it's so easy to look only at the present, just look at what's going on around you, and think that this is all that life is ever going to be. This is all of this suffering, all of this trouble is all we're ever going to have. And forget the future. And there's so many things that are in store for us, so many things that God has said he will do in the future. Paul wants these believers to look beyond the situation and see what God is going to do and then live in light of that. And also he's, he's reminding them of what God is like. Once again, when we're going through times like this, it's, it, it gets easy to doubt that God is what he, what he said he was. If God is good, then how can he be doing this to me? If God is really wise, how could he be allowing this stuff to happen? If he is really all-powerful, he would take me out of this situation and just give me rest. And of course, his love. God has just forgotten me. He doesn't care about me. And it is so untrue. God hasn't changed. God is just the same as he has always been. His love is undiminished. And the, the believers need to remember this. They need to remember what God is like. So let's begin. Verses 3 and 4. 
Paul, th Paul thanks God for the love and the faith that these believers have. And let's see, we are, read verses 3 and 4. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. It's particularly special to Paul because of the trouble that these believers are going through, the fact that they are trusting God and that their love is growing. And then he says in verse 5, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Now, what is Paul talking about here? He's talking about the people who are responsible in verse 4 for the persecutions and tribulations that these believers are going through. He's saying that God is right in judging them. It's the fact that they are doing these things to the church is clear evidence that God is right in judging them. Now, how is God, how is God judging these people? You say, these, they're not suffering any trouble. They're making the believers' lives difficult. And they're not going through any trouble themselves. But it's perfectly true, even though we can't see it. John 3.36 says that he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him present tense this is happening to these people as as paul is writing this and then in romans 2 5 if you refuse salvation paul says you are treasuring up for yourself wrath god's wrath is just building up waiting for you and when you meet him you're going to experience it and when these people when god when god returns when they see god they will receive his wrath to them as he says let's read verses 6 and 7 since it is a righteous thing with god to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Paul is saying that it is righteous of God to judge these people. He's, only giving, he's not giving them anything above what they truly deserve. What he's giving them is right. It would be unjust of God to let this sin go, to let these people who have persecuted the church of God go unpunished. It is right of him to punish these people and give them what they deserve. Just as in verse 7, it's righteous of him to give those who have suffered so much for him rest in heaven. And then verses 8 and 9, Paul talks about what will happen to, uh, to unbelievers. He's talking here not just about those who are persecuting the church, but also about everyone, everyone who rejects the Lord. And look at what he says will happen. Verses 8 and 9. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Look at, in verse 8, what Paul is saying is the reason that this happens to these people, the, the, the sin that God is focusing on here. Those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. God considers it a very strong offense for people to refuse the Lord, to live their whole lives knowing about him, knowing that he wants to save them, but to reject him. I want to live my life the way that I want to do it. I want to have my own sin. Paul says that God considers that a very strong offense, and the judgment that, he is, that God will give to them is in verse 9. These shall be punished, punished with everlasting destruction. Those are two strong words. That means constantly being destroyed, constantly having a constant loss of well-being. What was not so bad in God's judgment a minute ago is worse now and it's going to be getting worse forever that's what that's what these people will be going through 
and from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Right now here on earth, people experience God's presence to some extent. They're here, they're, they're in among God's creation, everything that he does that is good. But when he is showing his judgment on them, that's all going to be gone. You are going to be as far from God, uh, separated from God as much as is possible. No way having anything to do with him anymore. It's just going to be a memory from that time forward. You see, God, God's power hasn't changed. He is, his, he's still as all-powerful as he ever was. He's just waiting. He's doing something different right now, and he will show his power at a later time. So this is how things will turn out. God has said it. He will do it. But, and what's it going to be like? Think about what it will be like during that time to look back and see life just as history, just as something that we've gone through that's part of the past. Look at verse 10. When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. God will be glorified. It means God will be shown to be great. God will be, people will recognize God for how great he really is. And how will that happen? Paul says that God will be glorified in his saints. How can God be glorified in his saints? At the end of the verse, because our testimony among you was believed. God can be glorified in his saints because people recognize that he, is, he hasn't changed. Even though things are going on in this life that look really crazy, that look like God does not know what he is doing, or that he's lost control, people still recognize that his goodness, his wisdom, his power, and his love are still there. They don't know what he's doing. They have no idea what, what God is doing. But that doesn't change a thing. We still recognize how good God is, and that brings God great glory. So that's the way things will turn out. That's what it'll be like looking back. What does Paul want for the Thessalonians and for us right now? Look at verse 11. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Paul wants God to count them worthy of this calling. So can we be unworthy of God's calling? Yes. It doesn't mean that we would be unworthy of heaven. The, re the only reason that we're going to heaven, the only reason we don't deserve heaven is because what God has done for us. He's saved us. His son has died for us. He's uh, saved us from our sins. That's our only basis for being in heaven. But we can be unworthy in the way that we live. If we live a life that's, un that's not fitting, that's not appropriate to the knowledge that we have, the understanding of how great God is, if we were to live, live life, not trust God, and then get to heaven, we would be so ashamed of looking back on a life like that. And then also Paul says that God would, count, that God would fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness, or fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness. Now, Notice that Paul does not ask God to deliver them out of the persecution that they're going through. He wants God to work through them during this time to show the good pleasure of his goodness. Now, how could God show, the, show his goodness during this time? He's using the persecution to build them up, to show them himself, to save others. Remember the example that we saw that these believers are. Back in, back in uh, Paul's first letter, that there is such an example to everyone around them. And then also, 
the work of faith with power. Paul wants these believers to trust God that what he's doing is right. And then he says the result of this in verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, God will be glorified. We saw that. But that we may be glorified, that, and you in him. God, we will be glorified too, not in the same way, but God will reward us. And it's only, as he says, because of his grace that he does this. What an encouragement this must have been to the Thessalonians, looking, looking at this through their eyes during this time, to recognize that God is still the same. He's still the same as he's always been. Even though they're going through this pain and this trouble now, it's only going to be here on this earth. And they know that when they're with God forever, they'll have rest. And so while, while we're here, we need to live our lives pleasing to God in service for him. Then chapter 2, Paul has to correct the error that we mentioned before. Remember, we said these believers think that the day of the Lord has already started. And it's because of, probably, the persecution that they're going through, such difficult times. They think that the day of the Lord has already started. They're going through it. But the way that this has actually been sparked, the way that... It's actually begun, the, way they, the reason they believe this is a little bit different. Let's read verses 1 and 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. It's clear that a message had come into the church claiming to be from Paul, and this message said that the day of the Lord had already started. It was either either by spirit, which is some revelation that Paul had had that people, people, so people claimed, or by word, some teaching that Paul, some, something that Paul was teaching, so people claimed again, or by letter. There may have been a forged letter that came into the church the claiming to be written by Paul saying the day of the Lord had already started. And it's just another one of the devil's tactics. He's trying to bring the church down. But you say, how could the believers have known? How, how could they have understood this is spiritual teaching claiming to be from paul how could they have understood that it was wrong and it's because as paul says later on here paul's teaching that he had given them before contradicted what this what this letter or what this teaching said so they should have known that god cannot change what god had said through paul before when he was there with them was what was that was what was true god would never change uh, change what he was saying and then say something different but Paul doesn't condemn them here. He just goes through and he explains to them why the day of the Lord could not possibly be happening. First of all, we know that the day of the Lord won't take place until after the rapture. We won't be here for it. But the way Paul shows them here is he shows them things that will be going on during the day of the Lord that will make it entirely different from anything that we can experience now. So let's read verses 3 and 4. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The first thing that Paul mentions that will take place before the day of the Lord is the falling away. Paul doesn't go into depth here. He actually does in some of his other letters. What, it, what, the, what the falling away is, the church will be just full of sin, and it'll be full of people who claim to be Christians, but their lives show that they're not. It's the opposite. Paul says, in fact, in 2 Timothy 3, he describes these people and the sin that they're doing, and then he says, 
having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And that is definitely not going on, definitely not going on in the church. And then he also talks about this man of sin who will be revealed then. And we're going to hear a lot about this guy for the next few verses. So let's try to get a description of him. First of all, his name. He's called the man of sin. It's because sin is part of him. It's so much a part of his life. It's, it's, uh, it's everything that he's about. It's, it so permeates his character. By contrast, Jesus was called the man of sorrows. Think of that. The Lord of glory who came to this earth. And the thing that most distinguishes him, the thing that's most memorable about him is the sorrow that he went through. But this man is the man of sin. And he's also called here the son of perdition. Perdition is destruction or hell. And because he is the man of sin, because that's what he's all about, he is his destiny, where he is going to be, without a doubt, is hell. That is where he deserves to go more than anything else. So that's his name. Now what he does is, in verse 4, he opposes God. This is the Antichrist. This is who this man of sin is. And he opposes God. He stands in he stands in the way of everything that God is trying to that God is doing, and he tries to stop it. And even more than that, he tries to take God's place. He sa- it says here, and remember when we're reading through this, these are things that the Thessalonians would have looked at and said, "Does this match up with what's going on right now?" Look at this guy. Verse four, he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's certainly not going on right now. So they would have recognized that. But then besides the falling away and besides the man of sin, there's going to be something going on that is affecting every people's, that's going to be affecting the way people live daily. And that is that sin is just going to be let loose. Right now, the life we're living right now, the Holy Spirit is restraining sin. He's keeping it down. But look what's going to happen in verses 6 and 7. And now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. You get the impression that the Holy Spirit is just keeping a lid on sin. People are being, he's keeping people from doing everything they want to do. Keeping people from doing all of the sin that they could be doing. And he's keeping a lid on it. But during this time, he's just going to let the lid off. And sin is just going to be everywhere. People acting, doing whatever they want. Paul describes it here as lawlessness. People acting as if there were no law. That's what it's going to be like during that time. And then verse 8, then the lawless one will be revealed. He He won't be revealed until this happens. The lawless one is the man of sin, the antichrist that we've seen. And Paul's going to go through and describe this man of sin a little bit more. But before he does, and he describes what happens when he's here, he wants to make one thing clear. And that is, this man of sin, as powerful as he seems, and as awful as it's going to be to be on the earth when he's here too, he has no power in himself. He's only here because God allows it. When God comes to take him away, when God comes to remove him, look what happens in verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Those are two things that we probably wouldn't consider that strong, breath and brightness. But when the Lord shows these against this man, when the Lord uses them against this man, that is the end of him. But while he's here, verses 9 and 10, this is what it's going to be like. The coming of the lawless one 
is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. This man, when he's here on this earth, his working, his work is going to be full of such deceit, such lying. Paul says lying wonders here. He's going to look really great. He's going to look really impressive, powerful. So much so that people who have not believed the Lord are going to believe what he teaches. And you may be sitting here not having accepted the Lord and you say, okay, I see it coming now. I'm not going to fall for this because I already know what's going to happen. But that's not the full picture. Look at verses 11 and 12. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they, and that, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You see, it's not just your choice. God will send strong delusion. This is something you won't be able to resist. God will make you believe the lie. And he's not doing this arbitrarily. He's doing this to people who have refused the truth. Look at verse 12. Who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. If you choose to leave the Lord alone, and you have nothing to do with him, you don't want to believe him. The Lord's going to make that permanent. That's the way that it's going to be forever. After this, you will be condemned, and that's it. It is the most foolish thing you could possibly do to not trust the Lord while you're here. And then the next section, you can imagine that reading through, that well, hearing this probably for the Thessalonians, it would have been a little bit frightening for them to see what God is going to do to those who refuse him. So Paul follows it up here with some encouragement for them. He shows them that the future that they're going to have could not be better. And even more than that, the future they have could not be more secure. Let's step through verses 13 and 14 and see what how God is taking care of us. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. That's the first one. Beloved by the Lord. God loves us. God cares for us so much. And if he loves us so deeply, he's not going to allow any harm to come to us. And then, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God has been working on this plan since before time began. He chose us from the beginning. And if God has been working on this for this long, he's not going to allow anything to change it at this point. And then verse 14, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our future is to be with the Lord. We will be with him, enjoying his presence. Contrast that now with chapter 1, verse 9. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Those who refuse the Lord will be gone. They'll be away from him forever. But, but again, by contrast, we who have believed the Lord will be in his presence. Because of this, Paul says, because of the position that we're in, Paul says in verse 15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now, when Paul's talking about traditions here, he's not, say, he's not talking about some story or some idea that has been passed down that might not be true. Instead, he's talking about the truths that these believers have. Remember, they don't have the Bible. What they have, he says here, by word, that would be the teaching that Paul gave them when he was in Thessalonica, or our epistle, which is the first letter that Paul wrote to them that we studied last week. He says he wants them to hang on to this, 
to hold on to this, to base their lives entirely on what they have that they know to be true. And then verses 16 and 17, we've got one more beautiful description of God's care for us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Everlasting consolation. What peace that means. That means that when we're in heaven, we're, we will be looking forward to knowing that there is going to be no more pain for us. Everything that we're looking forward to in the future is joy and peace. No, no pain, nothing. it will not be a part of our lives from then on out. And then compare that again to chapter 1, verse 9. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction. Again, for those who refuse the Lord, everlasting pain, pain forever. But for us who, but for us who believe the Lord, everlasting consolation, joy, peace, being with the Lord forever. And so Paul says in verse 17 that we shouldn't, we shouldn't just be accepting the Lord's goodness to us. We shouldn't just be taking it in and not showing it out. He says that he wants God to establish you in every good word and work. We should be showing God's love. We should be, our lives should be full of good in our words and our works. Then at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul exchanges prayer requests with the Thessalonians. He has some things that he wants them to pray for him, and he prays for them also. So verses 1 and 2 are Paul's request to Paul or excuse me, Paul's request that the Thessalonians pray for him. Let's read it. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. That's a neat phrase there that the word of the Lord may run swiftly. It means that, the word, that God's word would have free reign, that it would be able to go, do, go and do whatever it can, unhindered. And we know that when God's word is let loose, that it, when it goes and does whatever it can, it changes people's lives. People's lives are turned from the sin that they're going through to loving God and serving him. But unfortunately, that's not what's going on where Paul's at because there are unreasonable and wicked men and they are hindering God's word from doing what it can. They're keeping it back. And so Paul is asking for prayer that these men and the work that they're doing would be stopped. Then in verse 5, we find Paul's prayer for the Thessalonians. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. This is a specific prayer, specific to the situation that they're going through. First of all, the love of God. Love is always true. That should be what everything in our lives are based on. But the patience of Christ is particularly true for them. The suffering that they're going through, the difficulty, they need patience. They really need patience. And what higher example of patience is there than Jesus himself and the patience that he displayed going through suffering for, for us? Isaiah says that as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He took everything that God had for in store for him without complaining. And that's the same attitude that the Thessalonians should have here. Then verses 6 through 15 of chapter 3, we find Paul's only warning in this book for something that's going on wrong in the church that needs to be changed. But it's a pretty strong one. There are some men in the church who are being disorderly. Now, disorderly doesn't mean that they don't keep their rooms neat 
or they don't clean their houses properly. It means it's, it's a military term, actually. The rest of the believers are walking in order. They're, in, they're doing what God wants them to in, the, in following one fashion. But these guys are doing their own thing. They're going contrary to what the Lord has directed. In this case here, we'll see, they're not working. They're spending their days just being busybodies, meddling in other people's affairs. And also, because of this, they're not following what the, what, the, what the apostles have told them to. In fact, if you remember, we saw these guys in the first letter. Paul has already instructed them what they need to be doing. He said, in the first letter, it was only a couple of verses, but he said, to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. These men have already known what they should be doing. And in fact, Paul says, as we commanded you. That means that while he was there in Thessalonica, he instructed them what they should be doing. So these guys have known from the beginning what Paul wants them to do, and they're just refusing to do it. And notice, therefore, in verse 6, that the first instruction that he gives is not to these guys, to these men. It's to the rest of the church. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Paul is instructing these brethren to not associate with these guys. They will split the church, and Paul wants the believers to separate from them. Verses 8 and 9, he points back to his own example. He wants to show just one more time that this is wrong. This is not the way a believer should be acting. So he points to what he did while he was there. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. While Paul was there, he could have asked the believers to take care of him, but because he didn't, because he showed the way a Christian should be living, he can now point back and say, look at what I did. This is what you should do too. So then, in verse 12, we find Paul's only instruction directly to these people. He says, and it's the same thing that he's been saying ever since he started instructing them. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. It's the same thing he's been saying from the beginning. But this time it's stronger. He says, through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's putting down a dividing line. Either these pe- If these people refuse now, if they don't do what Paul instructs, they will be breaking a direct command of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 13. But as for you, brethren... Do not grow weary in doing good. You can imagine it would be a little bit difficult to work for the Lord when this is going on, when these believers are amongst you, or these men. It would be discouraging. You've got these guys coming up, and they're probably not going to come up while you're working. They'll probably come up while you're having dinner for a little bit themselves. And they don't help you out. They just tell you, they saw you witnessing. Maybe you could have done this a little bit better. You could have uh, shared this in this way. It'd be, it would be so frustrating. It would, bring, it would bring the church down. But Paul says to continue to serve the Lord. Don't let this bother you. Continue to serve the Lord as you've always been doing. And then in verse 14, this is his instruction to them if they don't respond. But if any, and, and if anyone does not obey our words in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. If these men don't respond, Paul instructs them, the believers, to put them out of the church. These men must repent. They must realize their sin before they can have fellowship with the other believers. 
But Paul's not out for these guys' harm. Look at what he says in verse 15. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Paul wants to see these men back in the church. If they're broken, if they understand before the Lord that this is that they should not be doing this, that they repent and turn back to the Lord, the church will be that much stronger. And then verses 16 through 18, Paul closes the letter. First, in verse 16, he, he has a request for them, and once again, it's specific to what they're going through. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. And peace is what they need. During the suffering that they're going through, the confusion, the trouble in the church, the problems there, they need peace from the Lord. And that's what, the Lord, that's what Paul wants for them. And he also says, the Lord be with you all. The Lord is just as good, just as wise, as powerful, and as loving as he's always been from the beginning. And Paul wants the Lord to be with him. What a joy it is to have the Lord with us in these times. And then verse 17 Paul signs it. The, this, the salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. Paul's probably writing this to confirm that this is the genuine thing. This is God's word through Paul, unlike, as we saw in chapter 2, the fake letter that was circulating here. He wants to show them that this is God's word through him. And then in verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The grace is what we always need. It's because of God's grace that he cares for us in such a tender way. So looking back now, what a great God we have. He's caring for us now, but we know that he's going to come back. And when he comes back, he's going to put everything right. Nothing that happens here, and there are a lot of things that can happen here in this life, can change what he will do for us. When he comes back, and he, he will give us rest forever. So while we're here, we should live our lives in service for him. So let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the hope you've given us, for the joy that we will have, certainly, Lord, to be in your presence forever. We will be praising you, Lord. We will be loving you for, for everything that you've done for us. And Lord, we pray that our lives here on this earth, while we're able to show you this way, Lord, show you how much we love you, Lord, we pray that our lives will be honoring to you during this time. In your name, amen.